Church, it is fantastic to see you guys. And if you've been around the church for a little while, um, you know this is easily one of my favorite weeks that we do here at the, at the church. I love Pine Cove. Uh, I love camp in the city. We've been doing this for quite a long time. I'm an alumni myself, was, uh, uh, was a counselor there back in 99 and 2000 uh, at the ranch camp. Yes, I'm very well aware some of you weren't even born then, so just don't even go there. But um, uh, So a lot of affection. How many of you guys have kids coming this week? You've been around here. Maybe you've been to the camp or something like that before. You kind of know what to expect a little bit with Pine Cove. It is an awesome, awesome week. You're going to notice two things. Uh, a lot of jumping, right? College students that are going to be jumping constantly, 24 hours a day, right? Are you guys ready to get your legs working and stuff like that? Um, other thing you're going to notice is camp names, Okay, right? So if you, you get to know them, uh, they're not going to be saying, hey, my name is Bill, Jason, uh, Susan, whatever it may be. It's going to be things like who, it's, what's it's, uh, Flotato, and uh, all kinds of like crazy, crazy camp names. That's like how the whole thing works. We don't, we lie to our kids and say, my name is so-and-so. Um, back in the day, my, my favorite um, name that we came up with, this is a buddy of mine at A&M. The dude only wore Abercrombie and Fitch for every single outfit back in the day. That says something. But anyway, uh, ironically, he's in fashion living in New York today and is a very, very successful fashion designer. Anyway, um, but he only wore Abercrombie and Fitch back in the day. Uh, he also had rock hard, like 12 pack abs. The dude was just unbelievably cut. And so his camp name was Abzercrombie, <laughs> right? I love that, right? You get him up on the stage and you just start like throwing things out there, telling stories. And then people just were like, oh, we put this together. And uh, you know, that's your camp name and stuff. And so it's a ton of fun. Uh, mine was Dundee. Always, everybody always asked what was yours, and mine was Dundee. You guys remember Crocodile Dundee back in the day? Uh, you guys remember Crocodile Hunter, even better than that, Steve Irwin, uh, right? Back in the early, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s, like Crocodile Hunter, Steve Irwin was absolutely everything. And I was doing those skits at Pine Cove, uh, the Crocodile Hunter, and crazy things like that. And so all my kids thought that I was this reptile enthusiast, and I was a snake lover, snake handler, and like, and, uh, and I was the man to go to if you were about to get eaten by a giant poisonous snake. And so um, like, that was kind of the whole deal. And so I, for the most part, it was a ton of fun. They never knew, you always lie to them about the stories and stuff, and you have a lot of fun that way. And then, uh, it's probably wrong, but anyway, we do it anyway. Um, <laughs> And you kind of tell all these stories and stuff. It only got me in trouble one time. And I've shared this here at the church before. If you're newer, then you haven't heard it. And I'll get away with sharing it another time. So, um, but we were out at, this, we were out at the, the dinner thing one night. And all of a sudden, this whole group of kids comes running to the, uh, to the um, I guess, the, the cafeteria where I was. And they're like, get Dundee, get Dundee. And I was like, what in the world's going on? And so like all these kids come mocking me. They're like, Dundee, come on, you got to come. Like, there's a giant copperhead coiled up right outside the cabin. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Fear not, kids, Dundee's here, right? I'm like, oh, I'm terrified, right? I, I'm convinced that was the time that the Lord called me into ministry because I never prayed harder in my life. <laughs> right? That was the time. I, they come out there, and they start running. They're like, come on. And so we're running. I'm like, follow me. We're going to be A-OK, right? And we're running. We're kind of running down this pathway at the ranch camp and everything. And, and I'm not kidding. I get closer to the cabin, and all of a sudden, I see this giant copperhead coiled up right outside the cabin. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, Lord, what in the world am I about to do with this thing? What am I going to do when I get there? Am I really going to, like, grab it or something? Like, what am I supposed to do? I don't have a rake. I don't have a gun. I don't have a shovel. I don't have my car. I don't have anything here. <laughs> and so... I, what am I going to do with this? And I'm just kind of processing the whole time, trying to put on this macho whatever thing. And uh, I'm running down there. And as I'm running, I'm seeing the snake. And uh, we're trotting along. And I notice this giant rock to the side of the path. And I'm trotting. And I, I grab this rock. 
And then all of a sudden I say the most powerful prayer I've ever prayed in my life. Lord, if you're real, let this thing land on that snake's head and blow it to pieces. Right? And we're trotting and we're running in and I'm going. And all of a sudden I take this giant rock and I just launch it. And would you know it, that thing landed straight on that copperhead's head. That snake in front of all the kids just goes, boom, just exploded. And I was just like, that's right, boys. That's how Dundee does it. That's right. And I'm not kidding. Like, all the kids, they're cheering. I mean, I was like a hero. I, I'm pretty sure I peaked as a man that day. Like, that was like the high point of my life. I mean, everybody, I'm not kidding you. They're coming back and they're cheering, Dundee, Dundee, Dundee. And it was just absolutely uh, incredible. And so, not like my intro to this sermon, but um, reason I share that, we are talking about names a little bit today, and uh, we are going to get into that a little bit. And, um, and, and while they do share a little bit about who you actually are, they don't actually uh, tell the entire story. Um, Isaiah talks about some of the names of the Messiah, and we're going to look at those here in just a little bit. But Isaiah is going to prophesy of the Messiah, and he's going to say this in Isaiah 9, 6. He's going to say that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so when he does this, he's not just giving us random names about the Messiah. He's giving us a little preview of some of the problems that we're going to have to deal with his people and some of the different ways that he's coming to save. And so when he says things like wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, like to the person who is in need of wisdom and comfort, he's saying that you're going to have a Messiah who's the wonderful counselor. And to the people who are here that need power and strength, uh, you need to understand that he's going to be the God who is full of might and full of power and full of strength. And to the people um, that need a little peace and need a little comfort, uh, he is the prince of all peace. And to the people that are grieving a day like today, this Father's Day, because you've been longing for the love of, a, of an earthly father today, then he's going to say it's exactly who the Messiah is. He is the everlasting father who's not going to go anywhere. He's going to be here today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. And not only is he the everlasting father, he is the everlasting father who is also the wonderful counselor, who is also the mighty God, and who is also the prince of peace. And so this passage we're going to look at here, uh, like these aren't just random names. He's, this is an acknowledgement that on a day like today, which is a lot like Mother's Day in this sense, that there's a lot of people that are experiencing it with joy with hope and with excitement. And there's a lot of people that are kind of approaching a day like today with a lot of sadness and a lot of father wounds from the past. It's an acknowledgement here that there's some problems here and that, and that while we were created for the love of a father, um, it, it's the acknowledgement that without it, uh, there can be an incredible amount of damage that's done to us um, if, if this whole relationship is kind of botched along the way. Uh, Sigmund Freud admitted as much when he famously said, uh, there's nothing that destroys a person's faith uh, in God like a bad relationship with their dad because a dad's love is supposed to reflect at least a portion of the heavenly father's love for us. And of course, he would know this, right? He had a horrific relationship with his father. Um, he had a horrific father at that. And of course, he would go on to become one of the most infamous, uh, one of the most famous atheists of all time. Uh, in fact, I think it was uh, Eric, Eric McTaxis wrote about this and he says, almost all the famous atheists in modernity, modernity, I can never pronounce that right, Freud, Nietzsche, Sartre, Hume, uh, Bertrand Russell, Madeline Murray O'Hare, they all had one thing in common, either an absentee father or a traumatic relationship with their father. A little while ago, I was reading this article from the Gospel Coalition by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Uh, it's not that Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, and um, 
not that one. This is obviously his parents were fanatics, evidently. They named him Jonathan Edwards. But um, he wrote about his own traumatic experience with his own father here. And he described what takes place like this. He says, I was 25 years old before I could say the word father while praying because of the kind of relationship or lack thereof that I had with my dad. It didn't roll off my tongue the way that it did for many of my Christian friends. How could I come to God without fear when I'd been scared to go home whenever dad was there? How could I understand God's love and faithfulness when dad left town because he loved someone else, another family, more than me? How can God be a mighty fortress of protection when dad hit me instead of hugged me? And on a day like today, I just want to acknowledge that this is a day, much like Mother's Day, of many, many mixed emotions where a lot of us are sitting here kind of going, yeah, I can, I can identify a lot with what he said. You knew what it was to have that angry dad that was never satisfied with anything that was taking place at home. Others of you, maybe the issue was kind of maybe not necessarily that. He was present, he was there, but he wasn't really, really there in your life. Others are kind of dealing with a lot of different things, and and maybe it's the fact that uh, he took off very, very early on in your life, and he was never actually physically there. Whatever the dad's story may be, um, given that today is Father's Day, and given the incredible impact that our fathers have upon us, all I want to do today is I want to look at these names of Jesus, and specifically the fact that he is called by Isaiah our everlasting father, and I simply want to say that he wants to be the everlasting father to you. That's it. Whether this is a a happy day of celebration, of honoring dad, or this is a sad day of remembering the different deficiencies of my own uh, earthly father, the message, what he's saying right here is that this is, we're going to live in this broken world. There's going to be fallout from fathers, from mothers, from a million different things. And in the middle of that place, I'm sending you a Messiah, a savior, and his name to you will be everlasting father. I want to acknowledge from the very beginning, it's kind of odd to think about Jesus as everlasting father, right? We, we know this as a, the Trinitarian perspective. We know he's distinct from the father. Uh, he's not the Holy Spirit, right? This is a kind of weird to talk about it. Nevertheless, um, Isaiah is going to say he is the everlasting father. So he's not talking in a Trinitarian sense right here, just to kind of ease some of our minds here, that it is okay to t- refer to Jesus, think about Jesus as our everlasting father. He's not talking about it in, the sen- in a Trinitarian sense. The Trinitarian sense is that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, spirit. Uh, They are one in essence, three distinct persons. God is, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. They are one in essence, three distinct persons. He's talking about this in the sense that uh, we now have the right to be called sons and daughters of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. That's what John talks about. But as many as have received unto them, he's given the right to be called children of God. In a relational capacity, you and I, in as much as you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are found in Jesus Christ, you and I now have the right to be, to look at him and to and, and to see Jesus as our everlasting father, no matter what that may have looked like in our own personal lives. And so the first question that I want to look at, and this is the question that's been kind of hounding me all week long, is I look at this, as I look at this one little verse in Isaiah, which says that his name will be called everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God, uh, and everlasting father. The question that I've been wrestling with is, are these names even close to what we value in men today? Hmm? Are these names even close to what we value in men today? Wonderful counselor. Is that a thing you, you, you hope and pray that your young son, your young man grows up to become one day? Full of compassion, full of kindness. This, this person that's going to come and, and walk alongside the broken, the needy, the downtrodden, and, and be able to speak wisdom into them and to be able to have compassion in the middle of that moment. 
Are these names, are these even the things that we value in men today? Mighty God, probably. Mighty God is a thing. I, I would love to think about ourselves as a mighty God, right? That's not what we're talking about. Everlasting Father, the faithful one who will never leave you nor forsake you. Do men grow up today even thinking and dreaming about being fathers today, or is that more of a mom thing? Prince of Peace. When was the last time you thought about men leading the charge in the home or in the workplace, culturally, politically, as peacemakers in the world today? Like, are these names here even remotely close to what we value in men today? I was reading an article this past week, or actually it was a while ago, I was refreshing it this past week, but um, it was talking about the ever-changing definition of manhood and how this is kind of a futile pursuit to be chasing this definition of manhood, which is defined by culture because it's always changing from generation to generation. So I was talking about back in the 1800s, if you wanted to be called a real man, then that was defined as someone who was independent. It was someone who was self-made. They were a family man. And they were someone who worked really, really hard with their hands. Reason is, it's a largely an agrarian culture. Uh, the whole family lived together. They had acres and acres of land. They didn't live in planned communities. Um, and so you worked the land if you wanted to survive. And that's just what you did. And so if you were a real man, then you were independent, you were self-made, you were a family man, and you were someone who worked really, really hard with their hands. Um, by the 1900s, everything changed. The Industrial Revolution had taken root. It had spread across all of America. That had become much more normative in the way that we worked. And so about two-thirds of the men, they actually left the home at that time, and they began working in manufacturing and service industries. And so once again, the definition of manhood at that point in time, it began to change. And so it began to be defined by a man's ability to gain power, gain money, gain fame by climbing the corporate ranks. Now you've got a corporate structure over here, and you've got all these different things that you can hold on to uh, for a claim in order to identify uh, your greatness as a man. Things changed again in the 1930s. You got the De Great Depression coming. And of course, with the Great Depression, obviously few were able to have financial success. And so the definition of manhood went back to uh, how it was defined by the Greeks and the Romans back in ancient times as something of honor or virtue. Okay, and so if you were industrious, frugal, responsible, trustworthy, courageous, and bold, then you were considered a real man around that time. And of course, that's great news because not a whole lot of people were having very much professional success and things of that nature. They weren't dominating at work. They weren't making a lot of money. They weren't rising up the ranks or anything. So in order to hold on to a definition of a man, which is based on honor and integrity, hey, like that's something that I can grab hold of. Uh, things began to change again in the 1960s. The 1960s were the age of conquest. Man lands on the moon. Right? Commercial flight is normative across our country. You're able to travel anywhere you want to as long as you can afford it at any given time. Right? Massive, massive changes. In the 80s, personal computers were in every single home. Um, by the 90s, uh, internet connected us all around the world. Right? By the 2000s, uh, cell phones, like you were able to put your phone in your pocket and you're able to do that and, and take a phone with you wherever you went. By 2010, phones got smart. Uh, shortly after that, they start, kept getting smarter and smarter and smarter. They could pretty much go like George Jetson kind of on us here and do incredible things. And before you know it, like there's a sense that there's not a whole lot we're not, a we're not able to do. I mean, before we, before we knew it, we start thinking to ourselves, hey, like, there's nothing that I'm not able to accomplish in and of my own strength. And of course, it plays into the way that we see ourselves, define ourselves, um, even in the definition of manhood right here. Uh, a little while ago, Men's Health Magazine came out with an article called The Top Ten Traits of a Real Man. And the way they set it up, I love how they set it up. See if any of this article or th this little paragraph kind of resonates in, in, uh, in you. I, I think it, it made me laugh a little bit. He, here's what he said. He said, there's a lot of different ways to define a man. And, in, and different people have different definitions. So I'm going to skip all that junk and 
tell you the only thing that you need to know. My way is the correct way, and that's it. That's all. Capiche? A real man is strong. He doesn't cry. He doesn't moan. He doesn't complain. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't need to go to the doctor every time he sneezes. A real man makes decisions and lives with the consequences. A real man accepts responsibility for his actions and his words. A real man is firm. If life is a mess, a real man will slap it and move on. Right? Are we kind of accurate here? Is that accurate? Is, are we somewhat online with how people think and many of us culturally at least think about masculinity manhood today church my question is like and my problem with this is that none of this none of how jesus is described here by isaiah is what we value about manhood today i mean his name will be called wonderful counselor and prince of peace where in the world are those words in our definitions today where are all the men that are lining up and hoping to become counselors or mentors of young, uh, broken, uh, of kids coming alongside, speaking wisdom into their lives, being, being uh, arms and shoulders of compassion for them? Where, where is that desire among men to come and to, and to elevate and to, to pour their lives into the next generation? Where are the men that are leading the charge in peacemaking culturally, in the home, in the family, politically, in the world today? Where are the men that are, that, are, that are saying, you know what, above all else, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, I'm going to be all about counseling, I'm going to be all about pouring my life into the next generation, uh, full of compassion, full of wisdom, full of peace in the home, and my presence in this place is going to bring about peace rather than fear, timidity, or anything else. Where in the world are those things? Paul's going to say in Galatians chapter 5, he's going to say, when you and I, whether you're a man or a woman, when you are surrendered to the Holy Spirit, all, all these things, he is going to produce his life in you. This is the definition of manhood, womanhood, whatever you want to call but he's going to say when the Holy Spirit produces his life in you, he's going to produce in you things like love, things like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In other words, if you want something to shoot for, that's what you shoot for. Church, where in the world are those words and the definition of manhood and masculinity which we strive for today, Father, since this is Father's Day and we're talking about that? Where in the world are these different things, church? Here's what I've been thinking all week long. Could it be that we have taken our cues about manhood from culture more so than we have from Jesus? And could it possibly be, could that have something to do with some of the problems that we're seeing in the home today? Dr. Stephen Poulter wrote a book a little while ago. He talks about a number of the different types of dysfunctional fathers that we see in homes today and the different ways that different parts of dysfunction play out and really cripple us for the long time. Sometimes we know about them and sometimes we don't know about them. The first one he talks about is this super achiever. Um, I'm calling him the never glad dad. This is the dad that, um, that's never happy with anything that you do. Uh, whatever you do, it's never going to be enough. You come home with an A, he's mad that you didn't get an A+. You come home and you made varsity team. As a sophomore in high school, he's mad that you're not starting or the greatest one on the team. Um, he, you come home and you graduate and you're the top of your class. He's mad that you weren't number one. No matter what you do, it's just never enough. I was talking with a girl not long ago at graduation, about six weeks ago, and this is kind of her story. She was there walking across the stage and never glad dad, couldn't even stand up, couldn't applaud her that day, couldn't give her a big hug, couldn't tell her, hey, well done, I'm proud of you, any of these things. She graduated near the top of her class, did so, so well, but it wasn't number one. And at the end of the time, when everybody else is, is gravitating towards their families, they're hugging them, they're loving them, they're celebrating together at the end of this graduation ceremony, um, Never Dad Glad comes up there and says, finally, now we can go eat. And she just talked about mourning and just longing 
the affection of a father that's going to come and say, hey, you're enough for me, whether you're number one, whether you're number 100, whether you're 500, whether you're 1,000, like you're always enough for me. Poulter says, like, you can see this kind of a thing in fathers and in mothers a lot, in parenting quite a bit, even uh, while your kids are really young. Um, these are going to be parents that a lot of times are going to be very, very concerned about what their four-year-old's always wearing, even if they're going to the park, comparing them to the other kids, and kind of comparing all along the way, is my kid doing better than your kid? And it's all in an effort to validate themselves as a parent and to make sure that they've got superiority culturally. Church, we've talked about this a lot in the past couple weeks. Like, what's the main problem that this creates? It's shame, right? It's shame. It's this idea, it's this idea that is so difficult to escape every place along the way in our life, but it's this idea that, you know what, I'm never going to be smart enough, I'm never going to be cool enough, I'm never going to be spiritual enough, strong enough, successful enough, fit enough, a good enough son or daughter, a good enough spouse, husband, wife, or parent, a good enough Christian, I'm never, ever, ever going to be good enough. And of course, the difficulty with this is, is that it translates into our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to where we begin thinking to ourselves, okay, God, am I actually enough for you? Because I've never been enough anywhere else I look in life. How in the world could I actually be enough for you? How in the world could you love someone like me, even though I'm not disciplined enough? I haven't read the Bible enough. I haven't prayed enough. I didn't go to Guatemala. I didn't do all these different kinds of things. How in the world can you be satisfied? How in the world can you use someone like me and give me purpose? How in the world can you love someone like me? It's shame-based motivation tactics. And the problem with shame-based motivation tactics are that they work, at least in the short run. I mean, you do know, you've noticed this, right? Like all of, your, all of the greatest athletes in the world, like you, you've noticed this in, in a lot of different ways, but um, a lot of the greatest athletes in the world, a lot of the highest performing CEOs, they got to where they are today professionally um, because they were always working overtime in order to, um, to, to get their sense of worth. You hear this in stories all the time, like a lot of times this shame-based motivation, it works at least in the short run. By the way, um, the church has picked up on this. Pastors have picked up on this and figured out, hey, you know what? Shame will bring about obedience a lot of times, especially among men. You may have noticed this in the past, um, especially probably about closer to 10 years ago, something like that. There was a large movement in evangelical culture where a lot of our celebrity pastors began to realize that it's a lot easier to motivate our men to obey, um, not by showing them Jesus and letting them fall in love with Jesus and then saying, hey, go and follow Jesus. It's a lot easier to motivate our men to obey um, by challenging their manhood or by threatening to take their man card away from them. And a lot of the preaching about 10 years ago began to shift in a way, specifically as it communicates to men, where it's saying, hey, if you were a real man, you would be doing this. If you were a real man, you would be doing this. And it was a shame-based preaching saying, if you are a real man, which reveals a lot about what we actually want to follow and who we actually really are following. I'm much more prone to follow and to obey if my man card is on the line rather than following the Lord Jesus Christ simply because that's the way that he is. We've caught on to this in culture, right? Like, if you're, if you're a dude, you know, like, the man card is everything, right? We, we, we know this. Like, that's a, full disclosure, I lost mine the second time I saw the notebook. Um, <laughs> the first time was okay because I was impressing my wife. Uh, the second time, there's no excuse for it, and so it was gone. Um, but I, we know how powerful that man card is, though, right? And what, it, what an important motivator it is to us and different levels of that. You remember, okay, I went to Texas A&M. I was thinking about this this past week. Um, if you're at an Aggie, uh, how many of you guys remember Harvey Washbangers? 
Anybody remember this place, you Aggies out there? There's a place in College Station called Harvey Washbangers that is famous for the release form hot wings, right? Release, think about that for a second. Um, sir, I need you to sign this release form before you eat these wings, okay? That's, that's the whole concept of this restaurant, but they are that hot, and they are that on fire, and so the whole challenge is if you're able to eat eight of them, which they're normal-sized wings, they're not very big, so it's not the quantity that matters, it's the temperature that matters. They're the hottest wings in the world. If you're able to eat eight of them, then you get your name engraved upon that wall. And so every semester, we would bring the pledges. I was in Brotherhood of Christian Aggies, and we would go down there, and we would go hang out with the guys. We'd go eat, and we'd go challenge each other to this wing thing. And it was so much fun. We had an absolute blast. But, I mean, uh, I'll never forget. I was sitting there. My buddy Sean was trying to, he was, like, on wing number three. His face is swollen up. His whole, like, his whole thing is red. He's sweating through everything. And we're all surrounding him just going, come on, Sean, be a man, be a man. Of course, we're not doing it. But, we're like, we're, we're calling him out. We're calling him out. We're like, come on, dude, just be a man. All you got to do is just be a man. And, of course, like, that was it. Like, he, he figured out a way to just throw eight of them down his, his throat. And it was just bad news for an entire week. We had to move out of our apartment and let you figure that out. Um, but it was just that, that bad. Point of the matter is that, that, that that's how successful shame-based motivation can often be. I mean, it, it, it actually works quite a bit. The problem is that it crushes you from within and it reinforces this, this lie from the enemy which says you are as valuable as the things that you can achieve. You are a man if you're able to do these different things. You are a woman if you're able to do these things. And it's a lie that is against the heart of the gospel. Poulter continues and he talks on, he continues and he says, it's not just this, there's a very similar one, the never glad dad, but he talks about him as the ticking time bomb dad. And I think this one's a little bit more obvious here, but this is the dad that kind of comes home and rules his home through fear and intimidation, either physically or emotionally. And many of us know exactly what this is because the church is not exempt from this home. This is the dad that many of you don't talk to today. You can't stand to this day because it's really, really hard to love someone that you don't respect. That's my dad's story. He talked about it and he reminded me uh, a number of times. He shares his own stories and he tells me that, uh, you know, he had five different dads over the course of his life and one of them was incredibly, incredibly abusive. It was a good day for him if he was sober and he had a good day at work. Things may, may, may be peaceful at home. If he was drinking and things were not okay at work, then... Uh, it was a different kind of day. I mean, it's exactly what we just read a little bit ago from our friend Jonathan Edwards, where he says, for 25 years, I had a really hard time understanding that God, my father, the heavenly father, was actually a good God, that I could actually come to him in safety, and that I could actually have an interpersonal relationship with this kind of a God. I had a hard time understanding that there was grace on the other side of my mess-ups because I never saw grace the entirety of my life growing up. I had no idea what grace was because it was such a foreign concept. It was so different from anything that I'd ever seen. My, talk, my dad talked about um, growing up in a religious home where, where he understood things like obedience and duty, but he would come and he would gather and worship on a Sunday morning, and, and he could never understand why in the world people were like raising their hand, like, why were they so enjoying worshiping God? Why would they love this God? Like, loving him is different from obeying him and fulfilling your duty. And he's sitting there kind of going, I didn't understand this love for God that so many Christians had. And what Isaiah Church is saying here is that, is that it's just not even close to who Jesus is. This is not the picture of the Messiah. Uh, what Isaiah is saying is that things are going to be broken and the home is going to be broken. And we're going to make mess ups and we're going to have all kinds of dysfunction, some more than others and all different kinds of things. But what he's saying is this Messiah that's going to come is not even close to the never glad dad. 
Instead, he is the Prince of Peace who demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us and accomplished that peace. Like that's who he actually is. In the middle of our sin, in the middle of our wickedness, in the middle of our wandering, in the middle of our own personal dysfunction, God never stopped loving you and me so much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come to us and to lay down his life that we may be brought back in to relationship with him. That's what he means by saying he is the Prince of Peace. He's not even close to the never glad dad. And what Isaiah is saying is he's, he's not even close to the ticking time in some dead. Like, he is a mighty God. He has all power and all strength. He has all these things. He can speak and the universe can be created. He brings things into existence. He has all power, might, and strength. But at the exact same time that he is the mighty God, he is also the mighty God, the everlasting Father, who is also the Prince of all peace. So the way that he uses his might is to bring about peace. It's in Mark chapter 4, like in Mark chapter 4, Jesus uses his power to rebuke a storm and to bring about peace. Church, this is what he does over and over and over again. He uses his power and his might to bring about and to accomplish this kind of a peace. You remember the story in Mark chapter 4, right? He's out on the, he's out on the Sea of Galilee. There's a massive storm. He's, with the, he's on a boat with a lot of his disciples. People are freaking out because it's kind of like last Sunday and the waves are kind of going crazy and stuff. Peter comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, don't you care what's going on? Why don't you wake up and do something because Jesus is asleep on the back of the boat? And the text literally says that Jesus looks, he stands up and he looks around and he just simply rebukes the storm and immediately is still. Literally, he just speaks to it and says, hey, storm, stop it. And the storm listens to him and immediately there's peace. Church, like that's what we do for our kids, right? Hey, hey, stop what you're doing. Like he just spoke to the storm and he has power and authority over the storm and he brings about peace because that's exactly who he is. He is the almighty God who is also the prince of peace. So he uses his might and his power in order to bring about peace. Church, that's his MO all throughout the gospels. Mark chapter one, he uses his power to heal a demoniac and to bring peace to a tormented soul. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and brings her peace. He heals a paralytic so that he can walk and he can experience God's peace. He touches the eyes of the blind so that they can see and experience his peace. He opens the ears of the deaf so that they can experience his peace. Matthew 14, he feeds 5,000 miraculously so that they can experience satisfaction and peace. And of course, in Colossians chapter 1, probably the greatest act of might that we see in all the scriptures says that, that Jesus reconciled all things to himself by making peace between God and man through his blood, which was shed on the cross. Church, point of the matter is, like, he's nothing like we experienced at home. He's nothing like those, those kinds of things that we're talking about right there. He's not even close to the never glad dad or the absent uh, ticking time bomb father who's waiting to explode. He is the mighty God and the prince of peace who uses his might to bring about peace. And of course, Poulter goes on and he says, there's a third one here. There's the passive, emotionally distant father. And this is the one that is probably most common. This is the kind of dad that was stable, he says. He was consistent and he was moral. He never abandoned you or abused you. He never cheated or anything like that. But he also never said that he loved you or expressed any kind of affection whatsoever. He was never there when you needed him to be there. It's the dad who made up in his mind that parenting was more of a mom thing while protecting and providing is more of a dad thing. Poulter says that tragically, a lot of these dads at different times, and I want you to hold on to this because he doesn't leave you in shame here. The entire point of this, what Isaiah is saying, is in the middle of these things and in the middle of our, our own brokenness, he can be your everlasting father. He can compensate for our own failures as, our, as, as, as earthly fathers today. But Poulter goes on and he says, tragically, a lot of these dads, we've got no idea the kind of emotional distance that was causing all kinds of emotional pain and internal conflict in our kids. 
They thought to themselves, hey, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm protecting, I'm providing for my family. And all along the way, they had no idea that being a good provider also meant providing emotional support and investment, relational investment with their children who are actually in need. And church, I just want you to see the contrast right here. Like the Messiah is coming in and Isaiah is looking at him and saying, okay, he is the everlasting father, but he's also the wonderful counselor. That's the kind of father that he is. He's a wonderful counselor, meaning he's not just average and he's, just, he's not just taking a paycheck, right? I mean, he's excellent. Like Angie's List is going to give him a 10-star review, right? Men are going to want to go see this counselor. We're not going to try to bail from this counseling appointment. He's that good. I mean, I want you to listen to this invitation by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, and I want you to imagine what it would be like if you heard this invitation from your own father or if you were able to give it to your own kids at some point in time. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, what would it have been like had you heard those words from your father at some point in time rather than angry rebuke always? What would it be like if you as a father today could turn things around, repent today, and to come to your kids and say, hey, you know what, for the longest time I've blown things in our home. And I want you to understand, I'm surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ today, and I want to change, I want to grow. And you came back to your kids today, and you said, come to me. I know that you're weary, and I know that you're burdened. I see that you're cutting. I see that you're depressed. I see that you're anxious. I see that your life is in turmoil. I see that you're angry. I see that you're crying out for help. And I want you to know that I see you. And I want you to know that it breaks my heart. And I want you to know that I'm here, and I'm inviting you to come to me you who are weary and, hurt and heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. I'm not going to give you rebuke. I'm not going to give you a list of, of here's how to fix everything immediately. I'm going to come and I'm going to give you rest. Church, isn't that what we long for? Like what would it look like in your own family if, if God got a hold of you today and like you began walking with him and following Jesus more so than the definition we've created in our heads today and you started coming with this kind of attitude to the children that are in your home and you started saying, hey, come to me. Let's listen. Let's talk. I want to I provide wisdom. I want to provide compassion. I want to be there in the middle of your torment and in the middle of your pain. Church, you've got to be able to hear and see these things. Otherwise, like we're not going to believe that it's true of the Heavenly Father in heaven. And Isaiah, it's exactly who he is. In the middle of brokenness, in the middle of this fallout, in the middle of all these things that are going to be, going to be creating wounds inside of us today, he can be your everlasting Father. And that's good news because he's not like anything that we've seen. He is also a wonderful counselor. He's also the prince of peace. And he's also uh, the almighty God who can bring his power in the middle of your circumstance and bring about the peace that you're, that you're ultimately longing for. Poulter continues and he says there's one more. It's the physically absent father. And this one's obvious, but it's the dad that just wasn't, wasn't just emotionally absent. It's the dad that took off and left and was physically gone for most of the kids' lives. And I want you to hold on here because I understand when you go through these statistics, it can hit people in different ways. And I want you to understand that there is hope here and that Jesus can be your everlasting father. To the single mother who's grieving this that I talked to in between services, he can compensate. He can come in and provide this, this rest and relief. The National Center for Fathering did a study on the impact of fatherlessness, and here's what it came up with. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 71% of pregnant teenagers come from fatherless homes. 85% of all children with behavioral disorders. 90% of homeless and runaways. 63% of youth suicides. 
85% of all youth who are in prison come from fatherless homes. Church, you think that the presence of a father is important? Do you think that he knew what he was doing when he brought Adam and Eve together and he said, hey, in the context of this marriage, go and create a family? And I want to remind you, like, church, he's saying that in the absence of such a thing in our lives right now, Jesus is that everlasting father for you. And many of you single moms, can be, you can give testimony to that today and say, hey, in the absence of a, of, a, of a real father here, I've seen Jesus as the everlasting father come and be that for the kids in my home. And by his grace, they weren't a part of that statistic because Jesus is that everlasting father. And for some of us that are sitting there and we're grieving today and we're sitting there going, look, I didn't have that father. It's exactly what he's saying to you. He can be that everlasting father to you. When he was absent, he is the one that says, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. It's what Jesus says to his disciples just before his ascension, and he's giving them the great commission. He says, I want you to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you to do. And remember this, I will be with you always until the end of the earth. It's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples as he's preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and he reminds them and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that weren't true, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me. Church, that's who he is. He is the everlasting father who in his infinite love for us in the middle of our wandering sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to bring us back home because he wants to be your everlasting father. And what I'm trying to say to you today is that whether today is a day of celebration and honoring because you had that awesome dad that, that showed you the love of the Father all the days of your life and you understood the, the joy and the security and the love and the peace that that brings, or you're the person that's here today and you're grieving because you never had that and you had a lot of these kinds of wounds that we're talking today. What he's saying is that that is why, partially why, Jesus came. He is not just the mighty God. He is not just a father. He is the everlasting father that will never leave you nor forsake you. And beyond that, he's also the wonderful counselor that you've always craved. And he is the prince of peace, which you long for. I love the way Poulter wraps it up. He simply says, every one of us have the need for a compassionate mentoring father. He describes him like this. He says, this is the father that's far from perfect. He finds a way to stay emotionally connected to his family. He understands that his role in his kids' lives is invaluable and critical to their future development. Regardless of marital or career status, his father is consistent in his physical and emotional support as a parent. And it creates in children a sense of safety, support, and optimism that somehow things will always work out. This father then becomes an effective mentor to his kids and many others because of his ability to empower them to reach the fullness of their calling. Just one more time, church, what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus is all that and so much more. And he wants to be that everlasting father for you. Whether father is a good thing or it's a painful place of hurt, he wants to be that everlasting father for you. I want to invite you to bow with me.